Welcome to Navigating the Pandemic, Past, Present, and Future, the show that explores the novel coronavirus and how it impacts our daily lives. I'm your host, Kat, a current undergraduate at Emory University studying anthropology and global health. Today's show features Jennifer Shin. She's the founder of 8Path Solutions, a data science, analytics, and technology company. An experienced data scientist and management consultant, she's led high-profile projects in various roles, including director of data science at Comcast, senior principal data scientist at the Nielsen Company, and has served as a management consultant at GE Capital, the Carlyle Group, Fortress Investment Group, the City of New York, and Columbia University. A recognized thought leader, Jennifer has been named an IBM Big Data and Analytics Hero, IBM Digital Expert and Social Influencer, and MongoDB World Female Innovator. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Jennifer. Happy to be here. Uh, I just realized actually that there are some cooler things that I've done in recent months that uh, I realize is not in the bio. Happy to uh, talk about that if uh, you're interested. Yeah, that'd be great. So a few other things that I'm working on more recently, you know, I've been teaching at NYU for several years now and continue to teach there. But in addition to NYU, I'm also teaching at Brandeis starting this year, and uh, I'm going to be rebooting their statistics and data analysis course. Um, in addition to that, I'm also actually on the NASA Planetary Data Ecosystem Independent Review Board. NASA's put together a team of about 40 people on the committee, and we are assessing NASA's approach to data and where, you know, where there might be opportunities, not just for, you know, better, you know, better methodologies, but really recommendations that we can make to help them create a better way for researchers to be able to access data, sort of being able to make data, the planetary data accessible to everyone. Fantastic. I'm really glad to feature you on the show. And for listeners who are interested, I actually found Jennifer through her LinkedIn learning course using public health data sources. So I'll link that in the podcast description for anyone who wants to check it out. And I highly recommend that you do because it's a great way to explore in depth what we'll discuss today. I'm happy to be here and, you know, definitely always more than happy to share, you know, information about, you know, anything related to data, data science. Um, And so I do appreciate the invite. So to begin, I'd like to establish some baseline knowledge for listeners about COVID-19 data. The pandemic highlights challenges associated with data use and has raised really important questions about opening, sharing, and using data. What kind of COVID-19 data is currently available and how is it being collected? Yeah, so I think with data sources, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed from the beginning was that there were more data sources in the beginning. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of data sources sort of popped up. And again, you know, it's interesting. And, and this is actually something that I, I, I show in, in the LinkedIn learning course. What I do is I actually will go and look for information about where the data came from. There are instances where one data source will list a source and then that same source lists the original data source as the source. So you have this circular situation where both data sets are being, um, are citing the other as being a source. This is where I think, again, it's a bit, and, and, and this is where it's also a little bit tricky in that in the beginning, few, you know, there are a few sources. So for instance, like there was a worldometer, which also, they also had some controversy about, you know, where the data was coming from. There was BNO, which is like a New York news organization. There was, you know, obviously government agencies like CDC, and then of course, John Hopkins universities as well. And then there are international sources as well, which in the U.S. we don't really talk about, but also something that is, I think, something that we really should be neglecting, especially when we try to do things like validate data and, and looking at data from like the high level national standpoint, right? Because really as a country, that number should match, you know, what's being reported internationally. 
So I think the initial popular sources were things like, for instance, New York Times had a data source. With New York Times, what was interesting was that initially they had a data source available and they had some reporting they'd done. I actually, in the first couple of months, could not access it without a subscription. And so I, you know, for that reason, um, decided not to, not to investigate too heavily into that particular data source, in part because when I, whether I'm teaching or I'm speaking, I generally try to use sources that people don't have to pay for, because I think that really limits how much, you know, how much you can share and how much people can work with data themselves. And I'm a big proponent for having everyone look at the data themselves, you know, play around with it, really understand what it is that the information that we're getting is saying and how we got there. Like, how do we make these inferences? How do we draw these conclusions? Um, so for that reason, I try to stay with public sources and with New York Times, they did at some later on, I think a few months down the road, they did open it up. But initially, again, it was closed. That's the sort of change that happened over the few months um, since last March, where had data sources that were maybe closed and then became open. Then you had other data sources where people stopped updating them. So for instance, BNO News, and they were kind of weird because they, you know, were they were up to date and then they weren't. They were up to date and then they weren't, right? And then also, again, if you look at the source for their data, it again, it's a circular thing where they're citing other sources um, and so they're not the ones collecting the data. Then you had other places like say, um, John Hopkins website where they're, they're also citing places like BNO News. And that's not clear as to how much of the data is coming from one source versus another. And with John Hopkins initially, you know, it, it was a little bit interesting in seeing their methodology changed, but also their documentation changed. So for instance, the GitHub initially didn't list the sources. They also didn't list the data fields. They just basically had their, their code, which again, in, in research is not so uncommon. Um, I think once they were, you know, once they start getting more funding, because I think the other side of this that people you know, don't think about is they received a lot of funding and a lot of press and, you know, kind of became, you know, the, the go-to kind of almost gold standard. Now, you know, I'm a little bit critical of that because I think whether you're a journalist or a scientist or a researcher or if you're just the general public, we should look at the sources and understand where the data is coming from prior to making something sort of the standard. We should be asking those questions in the beginning rather than assuming that, of course, it's, you know, it's correct, it's accurate. So with John Hopkins, that's one of the places where there's definitely um, a lot of information that got put in later. So if you were not keeping track, then, of course, you might think, oh, it's great, it has all this information. But that was not the case in the beginning. The other part of it is that's interesting is if you actually download the data and were to say aggregate it, if you're a novice data scientist, you might notice that, for instance, the headings change. Okay, so we're not just talking um, the order of the headings. We're actually talking about the number of headings, so the number of columns, but also the heading title. So the actual naming changes. And so, again, you know, I think that's information that could be shared a little bit more clearly on their website, where if you are, say, going to the GitHub site, like I understand on the dashboard, you know, on the front end, that's not really the place for the sort of, you know, nitty gritty data details. But at least in the GitHub, if you're going to go through the trouble of putting all this information in there, it's important to keep in mind that if other researchers are going to use your data, that you make it very clear that, that they have to do some work. You have to actually go in and make sure that when you code it, that you're going to match the columns and they're going to match the column names to not just one version of the name. Now, if you have columns with you know, multiple names, what will happen is if you're relying on the names being the same, you'll have, of course, more columns than you should. You know, it's a relatively simple problem unless, of course, you're building a product on top of this. So if you're building an app, if you're building a website, if you're building something more sophisticated, this ends up becoming a much bigger, you know, a technical problem that as we get more and more data every day, it gets exponentially bigger.
the, I think the transparency across the board, right? Transparency, whether it's about data sources, about where they're getting the data from, what they're doing, the methodology, but also, you know, how researchers should be using it and, and, and also caveats about what maybe they shouldn't assume. I think that's also something that, you know, you have to dig really deep within websites to be able to find information about, for instance, what is being included and excluded. So inclusion exclusion criteria is also, again, not super clear. So sometimes when numbers are not matching on two data sources, there's a valid reason. But that valid reason is very difficult to find. You have to actually go into things like FAQs and really dig to find that information. I think that's a really good foundation for us to build on. And you do a really good job of simplifying a complex concept for listeners. I do want to know more about shortcomings in data collection and presentation. You mentioned that Johns Hopkins is kind of the gold standard of COVID-19 databases, even though there are concerns about their data aggregation. What are the most popular COVID-19 data repositories that are being used? And do you have any concerns with them, especially when we think about accessibility, usability, accuracy, or data quality? Yeah, so I think this is one of the places where there's a lot of gray. So one of the things I think if you're a data scientist and you work with data, one of the most important things to always do is to look for your sources. Meaning when we find data sets, it's not enough to say, okay, I found the data set interesting and like I want to work with it. It's important to know where the data was collected and how it was collected. I think this is one of the challenges with COVID-19 data uh, in that there is a lack of standardization a lack of consistency, and a lack of information in general about where the data is coming from. So there are many sources out there that are aggregated, like pre-aggregated before you get the data, but there isn't much information being shared about how it was collected, um, when it was collected, and there is also the sort of potential for having two data sources that are actually using the same data source underneath that data source. So it's almost like if you're, say, um, going to assume that each data source is its own source, but in actuality it's an aggregate data source, you run the risk of actually having overcounting, right? So having multiple data sources when you aggregate those two together. So it's actually, it's a bit challenging in that sense. There's of course, within the US, there's data that is being released by government agencies like CDC. And then there's also universities like John Hopkins University. There's also state level data released by every state. And then within the state, there's also city and county level data as well. And again, this is where, again, it gets a little great. You know, John Hopkins, I think, last year was sort of the sort of the gold standard that came out. If you actually go to their website, it's very unclear as to which data sources are being aggregated in their numbers and also which ones are provided pre-aggregated. So for instance, if you look at their GitHub, they don't list every county, they don't list every state. But of course, when you have national data, going to assume that it's going to count every city, every county, every state. But it's not clear as to whether they receive that number already aggregated at a national level or if they're actually aggregating that themselves. So again, oh, wow. why? Yeah. So the reason I can believe that COVID is going as badly as it is, is because I've been doing research and looking at government data for so many years. I'm very, like, that's why I was able to pick up on sort of the, the hole so quickly, because if you're in this space, you do realize sort of the, the you know, shortcomings of the way that we look at information and data. Okay, yeah. Later, we'll discuss a little bit more about data transparency and reliability, but I'm glad you mentioned some of the glaring issues with circular referencing and addressing where these public sources draw their conclusions from. You also mentioned some of the issues with national and global data sources. So I want to shift our scope to a global perspective on COVID-19 data collection because it's so difficult to fact check pandemic data that's provided by different governments. 
you know, for example, the WHO receives its case numbers from governments around the world, but it can't verify the numbers or compel governments to be fully transparent or accurate with the data they disclose. So will you discuss a few of the challenges to COVID-19 data standardization and normalization globally? Is it possible to ensure cohesion and consistency in data collection? So with the pandemic, it's not only a event that's happening at a global scale, but of course, you know, it's, it's really affecting everyone. And this is where I think because of the scope, meaning this is something that we're all experiencing at the same time. This is where things like the politics of, of things and what kind of, what kind of government a country has starts coming into play. What's interesting is the pandemic is highlighting some of the challenges and issues that exist, not just within research and data, but within countries. And this is something that ha- was in existence prior to the pandemic, right? The pandemic is now, of course, highlighting and emphasizing and making it much more obvious for us to take note of, you know, the differences, say, between, say, certain governments, uh, between, you know, how data is being shared or not shared. And this is, again, that these challenges exist for researchers all the time. This is not, these things are not new. Now, what's making it much more urgent is I think the, the quickness in which the pandemic has spread, the contagiousness of, of this disease. It's also, I think that a lot of us, you know, kind of got used to, you know, certain, you know, we got used to sort of being within our own countries, within our own borders. And with the amount that, that people travel these days, right, the world is much smaller. But of course, the other side of that is we are no longer able to, say, build models that are only going to be within a small a- area. Now, what's, it's a little bit of a tangent. What's really, really interesting about these COVID-19 models that people were reporting initially is that one thing I did notice is that everyone's citing the wrong paper, which right there, you know, from a research standpoint, raises a lot of red flags for me about whether or not people read the paper prior to citing it. The second thing I, I noticed is that the you know initial paper, initial model, is actually you know something that was meant for small areas, which makes sense because historically people are not going to go on a plane and travel halfway across the world in a day, right? It used to be the case that you you didn't travel that way, and so the models that a lot of the the COVID nineteen estimations are based on are actually for a small, ge- literally a geographic area, and that's okay. one of the reasons also why estimations and such didn't really, you know, it was not, um, not as accurate. Now, this is where globalness of this is now relevant. So if you have a model where you're only looking at, say, we're within a country, and we're looking at, you know, certain geographic radius, we're looking at, say, New York City, and all of the area within New York City, the cities within, you know, the same country, right? So we're all within the same country. And that's fine, right? For that model to work, we should be fine. We're all going to get data from like the same source. The government is going to be the the source of things like you know um, these rates, and and that's a standard. That's always that's to be expected because really, when you think about information, when you think about census data, how does a country know how many people live in their country? Well, the government collects that data. Um, how do you know things like death rates? The government collects that data. The expectation is that the government would collect it, one, because to some extent in a democratic government, um, you're going to assume that they're going to protect the identities of people and they're going to you know, make sure that it's, it is sort of anonymous in the sense that you have to make sure that you're not double counting and you count every person. But at the same time that that information is not publicly shared, right, and you're not, you're not kind of... Um, you know, sharing too much information. Uh, at the, you know, the other side of this, of course, is that if you're, say, in a country that is not democratic, the data that released that is released by the government, we have to take with a grain of salt because we don't have a way to verify it. But that's just, again, that's where the politics of it kind of comes in because if we're now looking at models that are not local within a certain radius. We're looking at models that are global. Now it becomes much more relevant that we have to think about things like 
if that other country is not a democratic country um, and they're not being transparent with how they share, share the methodology and how they share even things like, you know, how they're, say, controlling. You know, initially, for instance, some of the initial reports that came out about COVID, there was a lot of questions about if, whether or not the numbers were accurate. We can't do anything about that, right? Because if it's not our country, and it's again, if, even if it was my country, and if it's not a democratic country, uh, my hand to be tied. So there's only so much that you can do in terms of data collection, especially when you're looking at something where it's international. I really appreciate that you emphasize that differences in political systems is relevant to the validity of publicly available health data. In order to have a more coordinated public health response, we really do need transparency. And we also need to recognize that disease models and forecasts can only predict trends with accuracy for specified geographic locations. And so to close the show, will you discuss methods that could be used to improve the transparency, accessibility, and reliability of COVID-19 data? So I think the number one thing is when we have data, it's really important to share how we collect the information. For instance, if you're collecting information, I've looked at survey data where we only looked at uh, online surveys versus surveys that were given in the more traditional method, which was um, to go, you know, say in person, it was threefold, in person, through the phone, right? And then through mailers, before the internet, obviously, but that was a standard. And then at some point, everyone went to online and just went, okay, we're just going to do everything online. Now, what many people don't realize is that not everyone owns a computer. Um, not everyone owns, you know, a phone. So now there's going to be gaps in the data. So in order to be able to address, you know, that being an issue for if I'm not being told that the data was collected via online, if I'm not being told that the data is being collected on the phone or in person, I wouldn't be aware of the fact that there's gaps in the data. And so really being able to explain, at least being able to explain like, you know, general methodologies, right? So, and of course, things like sample size. Um, the other side of this, of course, is not just sample size of data you used. Um, when you're looking at surveys, one of the things that is important is the number of people who responded. Non-responses are problematic when you do survey data. And I think more novice data scientists probably don't realize that, but it's not enough to just get, you know, 100 responses. If you sent out 1,000 surveys and you got 100 versus 100,000 and you got 1,000, that scale does matter because what it's saying is what percentage of the population that you surveyed, you actually got data back from. And that's where, when you're looking at things that, you know, sampling as a whole, right? Um, you can't really project out to the population if you're getting no responses. And you really, it limits, in fact, how many inferences you can really make or how strong an inference you can make about what data you are actually getting back. So, you know, being able to, again, um, understanding your methodology, right? Even even that concept of, you know, survey data, uh, you know, make sure that you really are good about looking into the different methodologies and not just repeating something you saw online. Don't go to Medium and just copy what someone else did. Because when you're applying to different scenarios or different data sets, you could actually do it wrong. If your data set is not the appropriate type of data for that model, you might be essentially making inferences that you can't make because the assumptions are not met. So really make sure assumptions are met, making sure that you share how you collected the data, you share what you did with the data. And this is basic science. You know, when you think back to like when you're in school, when you do a lab report, right? This is the sort of thing that we're taught to do. And yet for some reason, because we're suddenly on a computer, no one does it. You go to a website and suddenly no one cites anything anymore and no one bothers to even say things like when they got the information or who they got it from. Citation, not for the sake of just like having in there as like a footnote, but citation for the purposes of being able to think of it as like, a, like you're putting a flag on it or like a, a timestamp on it, right? For someone else to be able to use the information that you're providing, having that sense of like a timestamp, it's going to be useful because then they can 
go from that point on and then, you know, kind of get the additional data from that point forward. If they're not sure where that timestamp is, if they don't know at what point you stopped collecting data, they'll have to start from the, from the beginning because they don't know, in fact, where they can start adding on to what you already provided. So again, um, providing that information is going to be very important. And it really does then, of course, speak to things like reliability. So if you are sharing that information, then if someone else replicates um, the same results, then the data is more reliable. And so it, it kind of all goes hand in hand in that sense. I think with the accessibility part, that one's trickier because, you know, if you're looking at an international scale, right, you're not necessarily going to have data from other countries. We hope that researchers are using standard good scientific methodology internationally. Uh, that's why researchers are so important, though, because, you know, you're going to hope that they're still publishing research and at least sharing some of that information on the research side. So you can at least maybe reverse engineer and, and kind of deduce what those numbers might mean with the government's releasing them and where there might be gaps. I think that's something that people don't really think about. You know, we think about research as sort of like, you know, you just care about findings and results. But the other side of research that's so important is that researchers in every country, they're doing work that is valuable to the, the international community in that if they're sharing the methodology, then other researchers can at least understand where their data fits you know, relative to the rest of the world. So if there's maybe certain areas where there's more uncertainty, we can at least take that into account as long as that information is disclosed. I see. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's a lot of importance in having a strong and reliable methodology. And I kind of want to emphasize that because it seems like it's a bit of a theme throughout this whole interview, thoroughness and your data aggregation, um, and that researchers need to be important and uh, need to be accountable with citations. Um, and I also liked that you mentioned accessibility of international data depends on international standardization. And it's not only about, you know, the findings and results you have, but sharing methodology for bigger picture purposes, because this is a global pandemic. Um, and so I just want to oh, go ahead. Yeah, so I would say is I, I think not just for the global pandemic, right? So if we had these methodologies in place, we wouldn't have this, um, the same issues that we have now, right? So we could have in some sense, I mean, there's no way to sidestep it, right? Like the reality is in life, um, you know, we prepare as much as we can, but there's always, of course, going to be gaps. And, and so I think, you know, that's where things like being disciplined over time, especially in science, because science is not something you can pick up overnight. And, you know, it's like, that's a crazy idea that you just try to pick up science overnight, right? I mean, think about how many courses that you're supposed to take in school, like, it's just not, going to happen that quickly. Um, so I think this is where having good methodology before something like a pandemic is just so important. Because, you know, when you start adding in things like stress and like, because you're gonna be stressed out, and there's, you know, a lot of pressure and, um, and, you know, there are a lot of really, you know, important things on the line. If you're not someone who's used to having methodology that you like, you know, you'll stand by that you're really secure and that you've actually tested. That means actually, you know, testing it, understanding it, um, having that knowledge and that experience with it. You're not going to suddenly be able to build great models or even find solutions to, to really important questions just overnight, right? It's just, it's very unlikely. And even if you were to find, say, a solution, how would you recognize the solution, right? Like there, unless you have the experience, you've seen it enough times, you've done it enough times, that it's such a nuance when it, when it comes down to like really understanding a good solution, bad solution. At the end of the day, it's, it's a very nuanced, detailed, not just a task, but really being able to identify the right solutions or, or good solutions. It really requires understanding all these little details, these nuances. And a lot of times you hear people say things like, oh, it's all the same. Well, to me, when I hear someone say it's all the same, it means they're a novice. 
because if you can't differentiate between two models and that one uses one data type, and the other one uses another data type, that difference is a huge difference. And so when you're working with data, it's the methodology part is important all the time, because if you're not building great models now, how will you have great models when you need them? Yeah, and I'm really glad you went into more detail with that. And I do want to just say overall, I think you've done a great job of making such a complex topic accessible. And for listeners right now, I really want to encourage everyone to build on our discussion today and to take this LinkedIn learning course because it, it's something, it's information that's incredibly relevant to everybody right now. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing your time and your expertise, Jennifer. It has really been a pleasure. Well, I'm happy to be here again. I, I just really, again, to your point, I really do encourage everyone to, you know, take the time to, you know, if you really care about COVID or if you're worried about COVID, and this is something that, you know, I would tell my students because I was teaching during the time when COVID, you know, struck. And to me, when I've gone through difficult challenges, it's always been helpful to um, address it head on and at least get a feel for, you know, what's happening out there. And data is great for that. Data gives you um, a way of being able to believe or not believe the things that you're hearing. And you really should be able to, if you're seeing numbers on the screen, right, numbers on, on newspaper reports or on websites, if the data is available, you know, I really do encourage people to go and, and try to replicate the results, right? Try to find where those numbers came from and, you know, whether or not you believe it, you know, it, it's so important that young people especially feel that they have some control and, and data is a really good way for you to be able to have that sense of control despite not being able to control so much of what, what's going on out there. Very eloquently put. What a great way to end the show. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us, Jennifer. Jennifer Shin's expertise shed a lot of light on current issues with COVID-19 data repositories and the need for the general public to better understand how to analyze public health data sources. The pandemic has made it necessary for people to be better informed about public health data, but exploring it can be overwhelming. Current COVID-19 data repositories demonstrate shortcomings through circular referencing and ambiguous dataset descriptions. Jennifer emphasized the importance in asking questions about sourcing, processing, and accessibility. We need improved transparency and reliability of COVID-19 data in order to have a more coordinated global pandemic response. If you're interested in exploring this topic further, take Jennifer Shin's LinkedIn learning course using public health data sources. Thank you for listening and remember, Stay safe, stay sane, and stay well. All the best, Kat.